All right. Uh, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's a privilege uh, to be here. My name is uh, Philip Akutnaman. I'm uh, from Kaduna State here in Nigeria, but I work in Kano State. I have a first degree and a second degree in uh, international studies from Amadou Bello University and uh, Bayero University in Kano here, respectively. Hello, and welcome to Obehi Podcast. I'm your host, Obehi Ewafo. And I strongly believe that everyone has a story to share. Now let's get started with this episode. Also, I'm a customer care specialist. Uh, been doing that for about seven years now and counting. And then, of course, um, being a student and a scholar of international studies, of course, we first of all get grounded in domestic politics first, and then the history of our nation and about so many things uh, at all in our country. And then it gives us a better view to discuss uh, and understand the global uh, political space much better. So that's what I represent a lot uh, today, right now. Yeah. Okay. All right, Mr. Philip. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your childhood, because here in this podcast, we pay a lot of attention to that because this is our history. This is we are. Also, because okay. we, we concentrate a lot about African diaspora, even though we also care so much about Africa, which is the mother continent. Uh, okay. For this reason, uh, talking about our child, where we are coming from, is particularly important. So please help me with that. All right. So um, um, for my childhood, I grew up in Zaria, which is a part of um, Kaduna State, Nigeria. Uh, a humble beginning. My parents were... Uh, my father was a non-academic staff at uh, ABU, that's Amadou Bello University area. So grew up in the quarters, attended staff school, attended, um, I was in the minor seminary, hoping to be a priest, finished up and then changed plans again. Uh, went to study, went on to study international uh, studies in ABU and uh, finished up. And then took a long time before I went to my master's again here in Kano. You know, so growing up was, um, I grew up largely under, let's see, I grew up under the military regime in the 90s. So um, just the Nigeria of that time was, of course, much, much different from Nigeria under the civilian regime. And all that. even though I was little back, I remember a lot of things, uh, the military governors, the decrees, you know, the fear of the military men and all that. So um, that constitutes my childhood a lot. Uh, I didn't do too many adventures living in uh, the staff quarters in Amadou Bello University, but yes, we still have um, stories here and there, but pretty much everything went smooth. Uh, my childhood, uh, going to the minor seminary, boarding school, thinking of being a priest and then change plans. And now we are here today. Wow, you wanted to be a priest. So, uh, what, what stopped you from uh, uh, continuing with that with, with that line? Yeah, so I ended up not graduating uh, from the minor seminary. I left in my SS two, so I went to a mixed school with ladies, uh, you know, which was new to me because I was used to sitting in a classroom with only boys for five years. Now I'm in a classroom with ladies, and sometimes 
there's no permanency. Sometimes they want to sit close to you, and I was very shy growing up. So I didn't, I can't concentrate when a lady is sitting beside me. <laughs> I see where the confusion was coming from now. <laughs> <laughs> so all of that, and then in a way, I became a lady's favorite. And then I was like, no, we may not end up becoming priests anymore. Like, <laughs> Anyway, you did well, you did well. So you're going to tell this story to your children. Um, I, can, I can guarantee you that there's going to be a lot of laughter that day because it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, I really wish, like, I, I, now, funny enough, I'm somebody that I grew up with a lot of ambitions. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I feel, I won't force them, but maybe in a way, um, having children, I may advertise and market these ambitions to them, hoping that they will help me fulfill them. But if they don't, I'm not going to knock them for it. I'm not going to put pressure or force them in the bow. Just show them. I wanted to be a footballer. I wanted to be a priest. I wanted to be so all these things I wanted to be. I would uh, maybe uh, showcase it to them, hoping they get in, they find interest, and then I add my support to it. But if they don't, it's fine. So that, that's good. That's good. That's interesting. That's interesting. All right. Now let's come to the conversation that we have today which is okay. about the story of Abu Bakr Tafawa Balewa, who actually uh, was the, the first, actually the only prime minister that Nigeria ever had. Because, of course, yeah. after that, uh, the Nigeria structure changed. Now we have uh, a fully presidential system of government, but at then it was the parliamentary system. So yeah. uh, in this episode, uh, we are going to be looking at the person of Tafawa Balewa, uh, who he was, what can we learn from him, what are his political agenda, because this is how we review our history. Who is this personality to start from? How do you see him? Okay. So uh, for Sir Al-Haji Abu Bakr Tafawa which is his complete name, he, how I personally view him, it's, um, it's a Pan-African leader, right? Of course, our first prime minister in Nigeria. And uh, for the large part, he was somebody that was trying to manage peacefully uh, ethnic and regional rivalries added uh, to other with our colonial master still hinged to Nigeria, even though we're independent. So he was trying to manage all of this peacefully without being dogged and uh, very stubborn in, in, in achieving what Nigeria wants to achieve us at that time. So a lot of people, all the things I've said now, a lot of analysts have chosen to call him in this light. They call him weak-willed or uh, he, he, he didn't have the strong will to galvanize Nigeria to the vision that he was having for Nigeria at that time. But for me, I think he was just trying to manage everything peacefully, uh, hold everything in one piece, all the rivaling parts, just make sure that everybody gets what they want and there's still peace at the end of the day. So that's how I see him largely. Mm -hmm. All right, that's fine. Okay, later, later in the conversation, we're going to be looking at him. Okay, his vision is uh, okay, and also the, the opinion that people have of him and yeah. what are his legacy, because that is actually what we are talking about him today. We are trying to look at his legacy and what we as current Nigeria can learn from, from him and people like him. All right, mm -hmm. now let's go back to his childhood. What do we remember of him growing up? Tell us something about his background as a young boy. Okay, so uh, Sir Alaji Abubakar Tefawa Balewa, uh, he was born in 1912, right, December 1912. 
that was just uh, two years before the am amalgamation of um, what we have in Nigeria right now. That's the Northern and the Southern Protectorate of Nigeria. So that was the, time, the period he was born, 1912. He had a very humble background, unlike most of our politicians uh, in the First Republic as at that time. Most of the politicians you see uh, in that time, most of them didn't have um, that quite humble background like this personality we are talking about. So he grew up very flat, very humble background, uh, no rich uncles or rich parents. His, his father was a, was a district head. Uh, no, was he, he was a clerk to a district head, right? So he, he never had uh, privileges of any sort. Uh, the only thing he could afford was just the busy Quranic school, you know, then from there, the next best thing, because they saw that this person was very intelligent, they now tried and just made sure he attended uh, the Katina College for, uh, for the education, which is currently now called Balewa College in Kaduna. You know, so uh, basically he was very humble, quiet uh, background. There's no much, um, you won't hear so much about his antiques when he was little or as a kid. He was just a loyal, cool, and straightforward um, person growing up until he went into that college. That was where things changed because there he met people like Sir Amadou Bello, met people like Abu Bakr Imam, and then all these things now influenced him into becoming the greater person he, he became. In his young adolescent years, is there anything that we can talk of maybe relating to Mm. anything that he might have done or people have done to him, like his friend, of course, before he became uh, a politician, a popular person now, I'm still looking yeah. at him as an ordinary person. Is there anything that we can look at? Uh, it can even be his friends. Maybe, I don't know, they go to a party or they, they have fun, they had a fight. Anything that we can look at? Can you share with us? Uh, for him, for Alhaji Abu Bakr Tafa because of his very cold uh, background, he never had, he didn't have an adventurous uh, childhood growing up, even in his um, adolescent uh, stage in life. And he was not somebody that had, that had any ambition towards politics growing up. He never thought of leadership or, sorry, excuse me, he never thought of leadership or politics or being in front never thought of putting himself in front to lead. He didn't have any special um, leadership positions like a class captain or a senior prefect, or he never had any of those. He was just like, just another kid on the block. No troubles, no stories, no, no very familiar or unfamiliar reports about him like that. He was, not to use the word non-existent, but he, he just everything was so quiet about him. And you would see that in, even in his political career and all his um, uh, activities over the years, but he never had any, there was no controversy, no special adventure. Uh, at least maybe we could say that was recorded about him so far, mm -hmm. but he never had any, just a normal easygoing uh, child growing up, even at his adolescent stage avoided conflict, preserved them as soon as possible. He wanted peaceful coexistence. He wanted harmony at all the time. So that was what he represented even while growing up. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a type who could make trouble in the society 
But he grew up in the colonial system now because at the time that he was uh, a child or a young adolescent, Nigeria was not a f was not free yet. Nigeria was still uh, pretty much under the British uh, uh, system. Okay, it's true that we are looking at Tafawa Balewas uh, as a person today. But is there people that we could make a comparison to him at the time who maybe at his age were vocal, were already like outspoken about or against even the colonial system in which he did or he did it? Um, the only people you can compare to maybe people like Aminu Kano, right? Aminu Kano was, um, of course, he had a separate uh, upbringing with uh, Tafawa Balewa. Um, he, his background was not as humble as uh, Tafawa Balewa, so he could already speak out against what he terms in, uh, injustice or unfair or he could, he was already vocal. His political style was, he was austere, but he was vocal. He was more in front. He was not afraid of being controversial or being dogged about pursuing his visions. But unlike Tafawa Balewa, he was somebody that literally almost played by the book. No cutting of corners. He was not too vocal. He didn't want, he wanted to solve issues with, and make sure everybody is at peace, you know? Meanwhile, somebody like Amin Kano just wanted the right thing to be done, even if somebody would be hurt. So if you look at their politics at par, and then even his his boss now, his his, his boss now, Amadou Bello, uh, he too also wanted peace, but he was more dogged and more um, unafraid to voice out his visions or aspirations, you know, than Saoudo Kertefa So. Uh, even though he could see all of this, but he was not, he just remained himself all through, all through. He never felt like, okay, let me switch and be like this people in order to achieve my, you know, he, he just maintained the same status quo, his person is his person, all through, you know, him until his assassination. So that's the kind of person he... All right. Now, do we know anything about his family at that time or even after his death that we can make mention of? So that after that, of course, soon we'll be moving it to him personally. But do we remember anything about his family and maybe his children? He, he had a wife and uh, and three children, and pretty much his kind of person. There's no you won't see so much about them public. Um, and then, of course, being a Northerner with the Islamic religion and cultural settings, they don't easily put out their you know, in the open like that. So you won't hear so much about, uh, and I was very interested about this particular topic because truly speaking, uh, Amadou um, Al-Haji is somebody that is not spoken well enough about, like you can hear more about Amadou Bello very well. You can hear more about when it comes to the first prime minister of Nigeria, you won't hear so much about him considering uh, the kind of um, figure that he was and uh, what he represented being the first prime minister of Nigeria ever. Still, you won't hear so much about him that like you hear about Samuel uh, Bello. Is, is there a reason for that why we are not speaking so much about him? Instead, uh, people are paying more attention to maybe people like Samadu Bello and other um, eminent politicians? Um, well, I will give my opinion as the reason. Uh, he was largely seen as 
as um how they put it now, not to use the word a puppet. He was he was largely seen as somebody that was be, was doing the bidding of his master. And his master was, of course, Samuel Belu, who was his uh, uh of Sokoto that time, and who was even he was he was more tipped to be prime minister of Nigeria ahead of Abubakar Tafabelio. But he chose to remain in the North because he felt he has more work to do in the North. And then he felt, I would rather push my contemporary or somebody I believe so much. And he's largely been seen like somebody that was busy doing the bidding of his masters. Such that he was doing the bidding of the North through uh, Saamudu Belu. And then they also felt a lot of Nigerians and his contemporaries felt he was doing the bidding of the colonial masters also, even after independence, because they felt um, he was not, especially uh, at his independence speech where he was regarding the colonial masters first as um, uh, masters, then as leaders, then as uh, then as partners, then always as friends. They felt like he was not too quick to detach from them. Like he's still doing their bidding. He's still not, uh, Nigeria didn't become a, a republic in 1963. They felt he was very slow and just being too much. So people don't regard him as a very strong-willed uh, person in terms of galvanizing Nigerian unity. And so they just seemed like this guy was just busy trying to soft pedal and please his masters and just play along, you know? So maybe could be reason why he didn't, um, people do not up to now give him so much regard as even his predecessor, his boss rather, that's Samuel Bello University. Samuel Bello rather. So that really affected him. All right, now you are in Kano State. In Kano, yes. how do people look at uh... Alaji Tafawa Balewa. I mean, what, what is the common image of him among the Kano people? Okay, there is respect. There is there's admiration. Uh, there is the wish that he lived out um, his tenure as, as, as prime minister. Then, like, they still wish that he was not assassinated. They wish to have seen him accomplish all he had before he stepped down or, or something. So there's still love and respect and admiration and and some politicians also wish they could um, run their affairs in his style, in his legacy, right? So he, there's no backlash against him at all. He's still highly respected and, and honored, except for the fact that, of course, you know, he's not from Kano State, he's from Bauchi State. So um, they will feel that in as much as we respect him that much, he see as a state to honor him more than us. This is a simple Nigerian, you know, the kind of image we want to uh, have of him. Um, how did he rose to prominence? I mean, can you tell us anything from how he rose from just ordinary Nigeria to the personality that he eventually became? Because becoming the first prime minister of Nigeria is not a simple calculation to make. So yeah. help us understand that. All right. So for him now, uh, initially growing up, he, just like I told you, he had no uh, political ambitions. He was not looking forward to politics initially. After he graduated from the Katina College for Further Education, which is now Barua College, when he graduated, he came back and started teaching in state, in Bauchi State. Already he was teaching in the middle school in Bauchi. 
then he got selected to uh, for a one-year course uh, at the University of London. He went there for a year and came back. And he, when he came back, he was still just in, in, interested in teaching. Then he became inspector of um, education. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was appointed inspector of education. Then Bachi State. Now, while he was doing that, instead of picking interest in politics, he formed a, a, a like a small um. Let me call it a circle. Now he he formed a little circle where he discussed political reforms. Like that, that was where he started. That was the beginning of his interest uh, in politics. So he formed a circle where he discussed uh, political reforms in the north and then in Nigeria at large. Now it was while he was doing that that um, he was selected to become a part of the Bauchi State House of Assembly that time. Uh, then from there, as soon as he entered, the, he, he was now selected again to join the uh, Northern Legislative Council. From there, at the center now. So going to the center, that's the central um, uh, government of Nigeria. It was from there that you know people started saying, okay, this guy can actually, you know, with the backing of Samuel Bello, he became a, became a minister. Of works, that was around 1951, about 52. He now became minister of um, transport again. Then from there, that was where he now uh, he ran the elections. NPC, which he also uh, participated in formulating, this started as um, NPC is Northern People's Congress. This started as a cultural organization, later galvanized into a political party. They now put him up as their flag bearer for the prime minister position, and then he now uh, won. So that's how he rose gradually. He initially just wanted to be a teacher and just be around the educational the, the education circle, but gradually people saw that he could lead, he was loyal, he was not no double standard, and then they kept selecting him like that. So that, that's how he rose. Thank you so much for that, dear Philip. So now he went to London for a training yeah. Uh, okay, his personality now is very interesting to understand. Now, if for those who want to sort of um, understand how politics function, particularly the African politics is a complex situation altogether. No, um, he is going to be the first prime minister of Nigeria, yeah. taking over from the British. I want to understand how the consensus was made. Was it really representing the Nigerian people in terms of what they wanted, the freedom from the colonial master? Or he would sort of go in between, okay, try to do the will of the master, like you already pointed out, like most Nigeria will accuse him of. Because okay. it's not a very simple thing. Now, if Nigeria had fought a war, drove out the British, I think it would be a different ball game altogether. But if you are going to sign a contract to be free now, I don't understand how much that we can actually refer to that as freedom. As Please freedom. help me with that. Okay. So, um, it's a very interesting uh, part of the conversation and the question you're bringing up. Uh, now, truthfully speaking, just like you said, signing to be free uh, means that there'll be conditions to what you're signing, truly. And just like you said, if, if we had fought to be free, if we gained our independence by armed struggle, just like uh, some other African countries, 
I doubt so much if we still select or elect Sir Abubakar Tafabalia as our leader, because we are going to look for somebody that is going to really stand and uh, push off any colonial um, linkage or you know any form of we're going to get somebody that will just put the colonial masters away and focus on Nigeria as a whole. But the, the British colonial masters, they enjoyed a lot of uh, political, they enjoyed a lot of fluency when it comes to their divide and rule policy in the North. What I mean by that is, while they were in the North, they didn't, they didn't encounter uh, so much resistance like they encountered in the Southeast and the Southwest of Nigeria. In the Southeast, they met resistance down to independence. In the Southwest, over time, the yielded body, they encountered very strict resistance uh, to the British colonial system. But in the North, as soon as they were able to capture the Emir, that's the Sultan now, and just by any means make him buy into what they had, they already conquered the North. And so when they came to the North already had a, they already had an existing political system as a monarchy that everybody listens to. So if you are able to capture the, the monarch, you know, you have captured the people. So when they did that, they enjoyed a lot of liberty and everything. And so when they were living, they felt it is best we hand over power to these people so that we can still have access to them. If the Southwest and the Southeast have been difficult to, uh, to conquer and rule, the North has not given us problems. So if we have a Northerner as the leader of Nigeria entirely, which is including the Southeast and the Southwest, we can still have our way a lot. So all this um, contributed to how they made sure by any means, uh, the British colonial masters wanted to make sure at least the North should have power so that we can still have access. And they wanted to do it using the Sardona, which is the greatest um, political and uh, spiritual head of the North. He was Sardona, he was Premier, he was, well, he was like, you no, know, he wanted to be in the North to, you know, organize, you know, he just felt he had more to do in the North, or rather let's have Sir go to the center. So all this, uh, all these things, um, helped to build up how Abubakar became the flag bearer for MPC instead of uh, Samuel Rebellu. And then with their population, and they were able to, uh, they were able to join, have a coalition with uh, NCNC at that time, it broke off, and then they now switch over to the Southwest. So with all of that, this brought the emergence of um, Abubakar Tafabalia as the first prime minister Nigeria ever had. Uh, now, I'm trying to see if this idea of looking for who we can control to run the system is something that will be inherent in the Nigeria political structure, as it were, no? Now, we look for somebody that we can control, so he's there. So the British also, the think they are very intelligent and very smart in that they just hit our head against each other. We are fighting. Yeah. If that is a war that will break out today, we are going to blame it either on the north or on the south. Nobody is going to think that somebody is actually there just manipulating the people, no? And this manipulation has been going on for a very long time before yes. we even got independence, no? Yeah. So at the time of independence, uh, Abubakar becoming uh, the prime minister, what about those people that have been voicing, that have been very outspoken 
against the colonial system? Because we can see now that it didn't last, it didn't last quite long, no? Okay, so you mean other uh, nationalists in the struggle for independence? As a yeah, 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 yeah. Those that were very outspoken about independence of because Atode Nahoro, of course, will be the first to move the motion for independence. He is coming from yes. Orumi, my town, uh, about uh, that we are we want to be free because we just need to be free, not prepared for the United uh, Kingdom, which of course yeah. that is what the Nigerian system still remains today. We look at it that we just we are just serving there as slaves, as it were, no. Whether yeah. we need to be a people, we need to be free, we need to make our own politics and run our own system. This was not done then, it is not done now. So we, we are talking about it so that we can do it tomorrow. Okay. Help me with that. Okay. All right. So um, as at independence, despite uh, various nationalists that were clamoring for independence, you know, very vocal, very outspoken and dogged, you know, the British felt, okay, um, they, they, they felt just like you mentioned, being very smart and uh, uh, politically ahead, of course. They felt in as much as we're not going to hand it over to the most outspoken, to the most vocal, to the most, uh, to those who are struggling the hardest. No, we'll not do that because they will fight us the hardest. They will oppose us the hardest. They will push us further from achieving that manipulative um, agenda that we, we, we have already. So don't give it to these guys making the loudest noise. Uh, number one, of course, they are more educated, right? Uh, education came into Nigeria from the South, 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 Southwest and all these parts before it came to the North. So we were more educated people in those parts than in the North. Hence, you could see why they were clamoring more for independence ahead of the North. So don't give these guys because with their education and their uh, loud outspokenness, they say what like that, they will use it against us. Don't give them. Give to these guys that are already normal. They are, they are, they are, they are already, they are cool. They are agreeing, you know. Now, when we do that, we are still going to tell those that are very vocal about independence that we've given the independence. It is your person now that is ruling, that is in charge. So you can't keep clamoring for, you are not in charge. And so some of them got um, uh, positions in the, in the government as a then, but not just that primary seat, which is the prime minister, no. So they had other positions just to calm them down. Okay, the North, the South, in the central government, in the legislative council, like that. You know, so they just use the whole independence um, to just silence everybody or make sure that they were still running with the agenda of putting in Nagana, they can easily manipulate. So that was what the British, like just like a blanket solution, but their main agenda was still running. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's evident. It is it is seen there, no? <laughs> Again, <laughs> I want to repeat, we appear that we are fighting, no? We have nothing to fight yeah. about. We are brother, we should be able to organize ourselves. But yes. we don't need somebody that is coming that will be, be telling me this is what the Hausa said to the Igbo, this is what the Igbo said to the Hausa. Between yes. the Hausa and the Igbo, we can talk, we can communicate. Let's look at yeah. our common problem. Let's solve it. We can do that. If we have a good leader, I always say, if we have a good leader in Nigeria, the question of who is Hausa, who is Igbo, will be irrelevant. Because it, it's yeah. not really, it has always been irrelevant. Because we don't have a good central that cares for the for the component 
that the components are falling apart, then we are okay, yes, me in a Yoruba. In other, in other functioning society, you look at the nation. The only flag is the flag of the nation. Of course, we can speak different languages. That makes us even richer now. But those languages are not minors. They are not, they are not defects. They are advantage. They are not negative. They are positive. But the fact that in Nigeria we have a lot of languages it should not be a problem. It should actually be a richness to the nation. All right, now, Tafawa uh, Balewa, he has become the prime minister now, or become, uh, in the preparation of becoming the prime minister of Nigeria. What do we know of his vision of the country? What does he want to do? Because now that you become the prime minister, you basically yeah. have, have the, the mandate of the people. So tell me more about that. Yes, yeah, so for him, uh, for Sir Abu Bakr during his uh, administration as the first prime minister of Nigeria, he was going through uh, the, the difficulty of settling very stiff ethnic and regional rivalries as at that time, because immediately the our nationalists, immediately we got independence, right? We now fell back to our regional uh, sentiments. You know, we, all of them, nobody, uh, none of them was executed, so to say. Immediately we got independence, everybody fell back to their regional sentiments and interest and bigotry. So there was high suspicion against this region was suspecting this region and all that. And it was heating up the polity for Sarubo Katafabulio. Now, this is uh, internally in Nigeria. If you look at Africa, he was still battling with, um, he was still trying to make Nigeria have a voice uh, in the independence of other colonized African countries. You know, because he was also a Pan-African uh, leader he also helped uh, form uh, the OAU in 1962. He was very, very instrumental. So he was having that to deal with and then balancing the interests of the West. So you see these three things were the things that were bedeviling his administration. He was trying to balance all at the same time. Internally, they were, they were very stiff uh, regional uh, uh, rivalries. North doesn't believe the Southeast. The Southeast had their issues with the Southwest. The Southwest is saying, forget about the Southeast. Like, so, and all, all of this came into bear uh, when he began as Prime Minister. Samuel Akintola and the Southwest, uh, very serious issues. In fact, he was, he was even blamed for not handling the crisis in the Southwest with Samuel Akintola and all of us at that time. He was blamed largely for not uh, willfully, you know, shutting down all of that, uh, all of the issues going on down there, and which also people are blaming that uh, it resulted to uh, the coup that led to his assassination. So he had a lot uh, on his desk to deal with the rivalries within regions here in Nigeria, the political sentiments that uh, our nationalists had that was surprising because you would see that. Um, before independence, we looked united. Like we were just, we had the same enemy, we had a common enemy, the white man. We're trying to achieve independence. So it seemed that we had a solidarity of purpose. This is a common enemy, enemy and this is a common goal we're trying to win. 
immediately we got the goal. Everybody fell back to there. So it was a political shock, though not totally, because some of these things started bearing themselves before independence. But after independence, we were like, no, but this time around, we are the ones ruining ourselves, but these sentiments seem to be higher. So you had to deal with that shock. And then while balancing the interest of the West in Nigeria also. So he was for unity largely. He was for political reforms. He was a sincere Democrat. He was trying to hold everything together and see that we are all brothers and we can resolve this together and forge a better Nigeria that we have, almost, we have always clamored for uh, from the white men. But um, unfortunately, this never came to bear as the issues seemed to rage him too much, uh, more than he thought he could bear. And then, of course, before the coup d'etat in 1966, so all of these were the things that he uh, had to deal with that time. Yeah. Can we see some evidence of this, of his decision to really unify Nigeria and make Nigeria an independent state? Because an independent state is not simply a replication of the colonial master, where the only difference is that the person who is the leader is a person that looks like you. That is not what independence means. Independence yeah. means far more deeper than that. It needed to do with the, um, with the determination of how we are going to even speak our language. You know, in, in Nigeria, we speak, you and I, we are speaking English now, no? But yes. we could have actually decide how we want to speak our English, for example, just to start with. No? I yeah. know we have our Naira, I know we have the military and all that, but the way that we organize this thing, we're supposed to be different. Of course, again, if we mean what kind of independent do we have? Is it the one that will just go to sign with the Queen or the one that will tell the British that is your way out, like the American did, so that we, among ourselves, we can decide how we want to run our system? Because up until recently, we still need to ask permission from the British. Can we be free? Can you? Because nobody's going to give you freedom. You cannot be f It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anywhere. <laughs> I, I back that a little bit, though. <laughs> yes, I can see you're already getting heated up. So. <laughs> yeah, no, because we need to be sincere to ourselves. Because the thing is, it's, it's hurting us, no? Look at a, a nation like Nigeria. Look at the suffering, the poverty. This is not supposed to be like this. Because there is so much that we are not telling ourselves. What can you tell me in terms of evidence to show the... And I'm not saying that just for this few years that he was in power, he would be able to do everything. That is not what I'm saying. But okay. at least the proof on ground to show that we really wanted to be an independent state, a people who can be their own, that can lead themselves without necessarily becoming slaves to, to the British. For Sir Abubakar Baliwa, considering his kind of person, even though he he hardly deep uh, like deep seated in him this independence, this sovereignty, this autonomy to you know govern ourselves, you know, self governance, self determination as a people, as a country, we have a constitution, we have you know he had all of that, but it was his approach that uh, is being criticized largely because people felt he was very soft. Uh, and loyal to the colonial masters to a fault. Nigeria, was, Nigeria got independence on paper, uh, 1st uh, October 1960. But we never became a republic until 1963. Now, what's the difference between being independent and then becoming a republic? 
it was in Benin Republic that we got actual self-determination. It was in it was in Benin Republic in 1963 that we actually severe ties uh, with the Queen of England as being the supreme head over Nigeria. It was in 1963, not in 1960. All right. So it is still since it was under its regime, we can say that yes, in as much as we are still we are independent, but we are still connected to the British and all that. He, he, people felt you were slow, but it was still an achievement. Making sure that at least whether on paper or in, or in reality, that we are not the before 1963, even after 1960, the Queen of England was still the highest. She was still the supreme head over Nigeria. So anything she does not approve or approves will not or will happen in Nigeria. So he had to deal with that carefully as he can, you know, not really, not affecting any party involved, both the uh, our past colonial masters and then here in Nigeria and achieve that status of being a republic in 1963. It was major for us because um, even parts of our constitutions were amended from that time, which is still part of the things we've been amending till now, you know. But that actually give us a lot of autonomy to do a lot of things, even though not totally because we are still fresh from colonialism, you know. Um, the queen no longer, he, 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 we stopped giving reports to the queen. Uh, we stopped giving uh, the colonial masters any form of reports from Nigeria. Uh, everything still coming from Nigeria. We could, we could discuss a budget. We could discuss laws. We could discuss. It was from 1963 that it started. So this is largely attributed to Sir Abubakar Tefabalewa in terms of trying to see that we get this autonomy and sovereignty as a nation state, which is Nigeria. Then um, a lot of people still blame the fact that because he never got to complete his uh, his tenure as, as a prime minister, it was cut short in 1966. Uh, we didn't get to see the best of him, but this was one of his major achievements in terms of uh, our independence is concerned. Then 1963, Nigeria became a republic, you know, cutting away ties on the Queen of England as the supreme head over Nigeria. It was a major achievement uh, for us beyond just the independence on paper that we got in 1960. All right. Do you think that there's anything uh, Tafawa Balewa could have done uh, to take Nigeria to a different direction, uh, not only to his assassination, but to to a different kind of Nigeria that we have today. Because I know now, it's not a simple thing. You know? To lead the people is not a simple situation. I'm not by any means, not even an iota of one second to say that uh, it was easy for him. This is a delicate situation. You need to play power. Power are very complex you know, to deal with. But okay, he is the leader. I cannot call my mother for this discussion. You know? So do you think that is anything that he, as a prime minister, both as the figurative prime minister in 1960 to 1963 and from re-prime minister from 1963 to 1966. Yes, I think there's a lot that he could have done. Uh, I think there's a lot he, he, he could have done. Uh, just like I told you, he was loyal to a fault. Uh, the saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and all, he didn't have a turn on somebody like Saabubakar because he still largely remained himself. 
from being a teacher to be a vice president with the Northern Traders Association to being a member of the, he was still the same. And what do I mean by the same? He was the loyalist. He was a, uh, he, he, he maintains status quo. He's not in, he, he, he loves reforms, you know, but the reforms should not be, uh, they should not be gotten through armed struggle and controversies and clashes, no. If the reforms will be achieved using those means, he will most likely not be interested. So it made him, it made him not uh, being very, very uh, firm in, in resolving that conflict in the Southwest that, that um, ultimately led to his assassination. Like, you have issues that um, you have some ways that you're hoping to resolve them. If you're not achieving them in that way, and there's another pattern that maybe you do not like, but it's also valid in order to achieve those, go ahead and apply it. Apply it. You are prime minister. You are choosing the Nigeria is a large country. There was no time when Nigeria was small, even as at that time. And you could see that the rivalries were thick. People were so if you are not very firm, it's going to uh, it's going to affect your leadership style and your pattern and your legacy altogether. So that's what happened to him. He had a lot of ways. The, the achievement of the Republic we had in 1963, he could have done that earlier than then. Earlier than then. We could have cut ties with the British before then. He could have resolved the conflict in the Southwest much, much better than he did. Uh, um, there were several other uh, uh, policies that he had that he could have um, achieved. He could have creation of states, you know, balance of power, uh, from the center to the uh, regional units. He gave too much freedom to the regional powers. They were doing a lot, you know. Um, they are even advocating for a constitution that will, that will give the center less power and the regions more power. Under So because he's not somebody that was not very, very firm, it affected him, it affected him. He was largely trying to please his northern, uh, of course, he was trying to defend his northern uh, interest and his roots, and of course, his superior, Sir Abubakar, Sir Amodibelu, and then the colonial master. So it affected him. He didn't end up uh, achieving his personal visions for Nigeria. He did not. Yeah. Yeah. Thank. Thank you for that. Of course, that is a, a very important part, no? That of uh, having a semi-autonomous in the regions, no? Because that is where we see the development really try to have re-mini in Nigeria. Uh, yeah. because, but the Nigeria we have today, after we have uh, this multiples of state and the institution that we have, I'm talking of the laws that we have that govern Nigeria in terms of over-concentration of power at the central government, has it really helped the country? Is never going to help the country because the central is too powerful. The region uh, do not really have any saying. They are sort of begging the central to help. So I think uh, if the the, look, the state, for example, were competing for who can be the, the first state in Nigeria to develop electricity, to have stable electricity, it will not take less than 10 years. Nigeria, there will be electricity all across the country. But if we want the federal government to do this, you see the one that will build the road. Is he the one that will take care of education? Is he the one that will take care of the police? 
He's the one that will take care of the defense. It, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There has to be a clear distinction between what the federal can do and what the state can do, what the locals can do. Everybody cannot just be stretching hard to the federal government, give me money, give me money. Where are you going to get the money? Just from oil? The production of oil doesn't require so much people to develop. So if you are a little bit selfish, you can leave the, the population to waste because you don't need them really to extract oil. What you need is just few people to do it. But say, for example, we are asking the state to develop themselves. The state that don't have oil have other things. They need to develop it. If you have agricultural land, develop it. Pay tax to the federal government. But now, we are just concentrated on, on petrol. Because that, to the federal government, is where they get all the money. From there, it disbursed to other people. Turning Nigeria to lame, as if we are just broken hands, broken hands, we cannot do anything. So that idea of making semi-autonomous that was proposed, I think, by the first prime minister, could have been a very fine and intelligent thing to do in Nigeria. Yes, let me add. Let me add before you yes, go. Yes, please go. All right, I'll add two things. Now, firstly, the advocacy for autonomy that time, uh, regional autonomy, and it was not, it looked like it was a good thing, you know, looking at it from how you're saying it right now. But at that time, it was it was highly suspicious. It was very suspicious. It was uh, it was looking as though these regions just wanted uh, those autonomy that time, so that once they become strong enough, they will break out. You know that was the suspicion that time. So if you are giving them this autonomy, like they will get too strong, they will later start claiming to themselves sovereignty of a state. So, and in doing that, Nigeria as a whole will not hold because you've broken parts of the Nigeria. So the most noble thing to do as at that time was to make sure that the Nigeria was, and how do you strengthen Nigeria to become what it is like every place, every part of Nigeria being together as one is to have a stronger central government. The moment the regions are stronger than the center, central government, they will want to break out. Evidently after 19, uh, 66 after his assassination, Aguirre came in, 67, Gaon came in, and then the civil war. So, like, and what was about the civil war? Which you could say, you know, I want to break over because they were already, the regions were strong. If you added, if you had added more powers to that attempt, they would have broken up even earlier than, that, than 1967. They would advocate. So that was the suspicion they were trying to be like, no, don't. Let the center be strong. Now, Coming to, <laughs> I like okay. I like it. Go go go. All right. So coming to Nigeria, when it comes to, when we, when you look at our federalism, we 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 copied our federal largely. Nigerian the Nigerian Constitution is um, imitated after the U.S. Constitution, and also their kind of federalism, except for the fact that, uh, their their central government is still more powerful, but their states have larger autonomy than the Nigerian states. That's the difference, you know? So we are saying that, yes, we we, we, uh, we use their constitution as our template to form our own and all that, yes, but we made sure that because for Nigeria at that time, keeping Nigeria as a country was more important than giving regional, uh, than giving the regions autonomy or greater strength. Mm -mm. Keep the center first, keep Nigeria first before you talk of strengthening the regions, before you talk of, so that was why you, you saw 
That was this also influenced most of their political ideologies at that time. Just make sure Nigeria is one first. Just make sure Nigeria is one. I I say again that I am for one Nigeria. I am for if I if it were possible to allow Nigeria so that they can uh, include Ghana, Guinea, all of them, Sierra Leone to be one super West Africa country. I am in for that. But the question is. Doing that should not be at a disservice to the component, the state, the, the, the individual people that make up the, the, the country. And again, country, using the Western standard, sometimes it is very tricky for us. Yes. Because if you look at empires, now the empire of Mali, <laughs> I think it was, uh, according to some historian, was bigger than the whole of Western Europe put together. Now. Yeah. It is not just, it's not, it's not like Nigeria is too big. No, Nigeria is not too big as a country to be run by one person, a president. The question is, the way it is structured today, it's not working. We can see in evidence that Nigeria is not functioning. Okay, I'm not saying we should make the, 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 uh, the subordinate, the state, more powerful than the federal government. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to reduce the, the power that the federal government had and make the state more powerful than they are today, not to be more powerful than the federal government. Of course, okay. all this can all, it will be very simple to understand, like policing. You know, in Nigeria, we don't have state policing and local policing. But in many other parts of the world, like, for example, in the country where I am today, in Italy, there are federal police, there are state police, or if you call it regional police, that is the local police. The reason for this is very simple also to understand. If there is a criminal in Kaduna, you send him the police that is coming from Edo State to come and police that place. It's not going to work because the police is not just I have a gun, I tell you, I will shoot you. No, there are a lot of techniques that are involved in it. I need to know you down to the language you speak, to the code of your operation. And the way to do this is by you policing yourself. Sorry, it's by you policing yourself. Because if I am from my town, policing my people. Where are you going to hide? You have nowhere to hide. And this also has to do with the tasking, how we do our task, our task revenue, the collection of the revenue. You are going to, you have a project, you are going to generate a part of that budget, the money. The Fed, depending on what type of budget is it, then the Fed that can add to it. That is what is happening in many other places. It's not a rocket science. Because, like you said, no, we are trying to copy the United States uh, system of, of federalism. But yeah. their own federalism is not that everything is just, we are not waiting for the Washington to do everything. No. So state have law. Tax is different. The way you pay tax here is different from, the, from New York. It's different from the way you pay it in California. Yeah. There are certain yeah. autonomy that they enjoy. That is how they develop. Otherwise, we cannot just have a, a bracket development for the entire country. It's not going to work. We are not all the same. Yes, we are the same. But again, we are not all the same. That we must have our ambitions. But of course, the state doesn't have military. There is no state that has military. Of course, nobody agitated for that. Only the federal government controls the military. Border. The federal government is in charge of that. Of course, even if, even if the state were to even have police and the local were to have police, then there will still be federal police operating within the state. The state controls the information that go out of the... Sorry, the federal controls the information that go out of Nigeria. So you can't possibly succeed if the federal doesn't want you to... Nobody's going to do that. It's not going to happen. So that fear, okay, that is justification for it. <laughs> but it doesn't really hold as we see it today. <laughs> you, right. know, you know, you, know, you, you, you said a lot. 
you know, and in, in everything you have said, you have mentioned the issue and you have mentioned the solution inside, right? Very perfect. You know, just the little thing I, I, I want to add as, as, a, as a student of Nigerian politics, African politics, and then of course, professionally, a student of global policies, which is uh, international studies. Uh, there is the very, there is the very easy and tempting, you know, uh, spirit to, to, to always, which is okay. There's something we call comparative federalism. You know, you compare uh, states, countries, governance, and the style of government. So we are most times very, very, uh, how do I put it now? We're most times very, very quick to compare Nigeria with this uh, advanced countries. And most times I used to tell people, yeah, it looks as though, but it's not, not for all cases, because the Nigeria, as somebody that studied, I won't say I've studied all countries, I've studied a lot of countries and all that. The Nigerian situation is the most complex, is the most complicated, is the most peculiar, you know, you've ever come across. If across the face of the earth, across, I won't, I, I can say, you can search something, I don't know if it's anywhere online, but I don't think this is a country that has more ethnic rivalries, not just ethnic presence, not just multiple ethnic presence and uh, no, 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 rivalry and suspicion, you know, that can hinder their development and their political cohesion, such as Nigeria. So if you, if you pick the US or Italy or Germany or the UK to compare Nigeria, most of the time, you may not get it right. Because the peculiarities that bedevil Nigeria cannot be solved by comparing us with these countries. Why am I saying this? I am somebody that uh, this will be very funny to see. I, I believe Nigeria, I love the country. I'm in Nigeria and I love it, you know. But due to my studying of Nigeria, our history to present it, I am one of those few Nigerians that feel from study that the, the entity we call Nigeria was not meant to be. And that's why we're having these issues. I, I feel like we were juxtaposed forcefully just for colonial uh, exploitation not because we are cohesive, like not as if we are uh, we we have a cohesion as a nation state or as a people that can thrive best together. I really don't think that was what we are brought together. You know, I just felt the colonial master just put us all together so that they can easily exploit and all that. So since they did that and then they left and then they now call us a country and everything, we are having difficulty still finding an identity that favors everybody inside Nigeria. All so right, I like that. Of... Yeah, yeah, sorry. Okay, go, go. This is very beautiful. I'm going to come to that. <laughs> so, like, so this is a very, is a, a foundational issue that we may be suggesting a lot of solutions, right? I know there are other countries, countries too, that had, uh, that have, you know, ethnic diversities and came together and still conquered. Yes, yes, I, I get that. But for Nigeria. It is very, very deep. It's deeper than those countries. America has a lot of very, very diverse, maybe more than Nigeria, so to say. 
because America has uh, every race, almost every race and every tribe is in the US. And if you look at their motto, they will tell you, the pluribus unum, from many, we became one, which we are talking about the fact that this diversity should be a strength rather than a weakness. We have seen this in other countries, but not in Nigeria. The rivalries, the sentiments, the, the suspicions, the diversities, the things pulling us apart are more than the things. We have a lot of things pulling us together as a country that makes us united and all that. Yes, I know. But it seems the things pulling us apart are much, much more. It's not just, I think it's even beyond just our politicians. I really think so. It's, right. it's beyond, yes, yes. Let me just, let me just stop here. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, dear Philip. You see, I want to believe, and I think I know that we are human beings. Yeah. And human beings resolve problems. Yeah. If what you have described is a problem of Nigeria, which be the diversity in multiple sense of it, that is a problem. If we as Nigeria are finding a solution to that, there will be a solution. Because you look at the human body. It's not made up of one thing. It's made up of multiple things. The eyes, the nose, the mouth, the hair, the, the sensory organ. The brain is made up of multiple elements. Yet, it still functions as an entity. No? So I believe that you are right. We didn't come to be because of cohesion. Because we love ourselves. That is true. But this is what it is now. They set up Nigeria for the purpose of exploitation. That also is true. But are we not human beings? Are we not supposed to be mature enough to, at a point, take hold of our destiny and ride our boat, the destination that we want? We can do that. Of course we can. Come on. The problem is not because we are too different. You are in Kaduna. If I were in Nigeria, I would be in a do-stay, roaming if we don't say to any person that you are a Kaduna uh, from Urumi um, in Edo State, to the person looking at us from outside, it will appear that we are just close neighbor. Whereas Kaduna to Urumi is a very far place. What I mean is that thing, our diversity can, can be a problem, but it can also be a solution for us. In that, right now, I'm in Italy, you are in Kaduna, you are in Kano State, no? You can help me to see what I don't see in Kano State, I can help you to see what you don't see in Italy. That can be yeah. an advantage for us. Yeah. So the fact that we are different is neutral. It is not bad or good. It depends on what we make of it. I think this is where we need good leaders, people who are visionary, people who are able to see opportunity in difficulty, people who are able to understand that we don't all need to be the same for it to function. We can be different. We can be male and female. We can like and dislike, we can disagree, yet we can still function as a people. That is what I believe. This is why we need people who understand this so that they can run the system. You see, the United States is, is as they are today, is still far more populated than Nigeria. What, yes. are the, what, about the Roman, yeah. Yeah, what about the Roman Empire? This thing still function. So it is not because we are too big. It is not because we are too diverse. not because we speak different languages. All this cannot be the problem. The problem is our inability to yet decide that we want to solve the problem. Therefore, we don't know what the problem is yet, if that is the case. I believe sincerely that if we are making effort to solve our problem, the problem will be solved. Because human beings do that 
for being human. The question I want to ask you so we can move forward um, okay. is Abu Balewa. What do ordinary people remember of him? Of course, most notably, he was our first, uh, first prime minister of our very first republic. Uh, that's the most outstanding feature remember about Sir Abu Bakr Atafa Balewa. He was our first prime minister of Nigeria. And then he was, he was an astute politician and a leader. He was loyal. He is a sincere Democrat. Right? He believes in freedom of the opposition. Uh, you know, the majority uh, have the say, the minority, like to the core. He embraced people from every part of Nigeria, as it, as it were. He never discriminated. He was not controversial. He didn't create problems. He was sincere. Like one of the biggest legacies about um, was the fact that his intentions were genuine towards Nigeria. Uh, he always wanted political reforms and the unity of the Nigerian uh, nation state. Those were the things that he, he firmly represented and he didn't want to be misunderstood uh, about this particular uh, aspirations he had for Nigeria. So as much as he was trying to do other things like um, uh, defend Northern interest or the lawyer and everything, he still wanted to be largely remembered as a very sincere Democrat, uh, firm to his words, loyal to every agreement or every set agreement that we have, you know, and all that. So that was what he, that was what he stood for. This is what he's largely remembered for one of our soundest and the very sincere politicians that we have. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. Um, yeah. Now, what can you say about his assassination? That also is very important. He is a human being. He has a family. He's the first prime minister of the country and he was assassinated. That is very sad. Tell us something about that. Yes, his assassination was very, very, uh, it was a very sad development in Nigerian history, you know, because it was very, very uncharacteristic that uh, we just finished fighting for independence and then we are, we are beginning to kill our leaders by ourselves. You know, it was so contradictory, it was contrasting. You, you want to wrap your head around it. But we're not the ones that just finished gaining independence, not up to a decade. And then the first self-governance that we have by ourselves, we go ahead to assassinate uh, and stage a coup d'etat and say, you know, we want something different. So it questions what we really want as a nation. That time, you know, it questioned our aspirations or ambitions or what we actually want to represent. Now, the, his assassination happened at the time, at the time when uh, the coup plotters thought they were trying to assassinate all top uh, politicians in Nigeria at that time. But um, in the history books, you see that um, there was what seemed to be like an error. The northern uh, leaders, you know, were, northern leaders in the central government were assassinated. Leaders in the southwest were assassinated, but the ones in the southeast were not, you know. So, and then it ushered in uh, a military head of state that came from the southeast, where their political leaders at that time were not assassinated during the coup. So it raised further suspicions again as to, ah, okay, 
Is the Southeast trying to prove that they have another agenda apart from the common agenda we had in assassinating all these uh, political leaders that we had? So now prepared another counter coup again. So this assassination was very, it, it threw Nigeria into a serious turmoil. Uh, it questioned our aspiration and our ambition as a nation state, as a country in Nigeria. Like, what do we really want in government? You know, what's our aspiration? Him as a person uh, representing the North, the North felt like our leaders were assassinated. And then like, these are the two pillars that we had in the central government and at the regional levels that got, they were assassinated too. His absence meant a lot. Uh, his assassination was very, very shocking. It was, it was, uh, it questioned our existence actually. It questioned our aspirations as a country. You know, looking at, he never caused any trouble and then that assassination. So largely, that's how it's being remembered up till date. And, and there are consequences for that assassination, for that death, no? Do you think there is anything that he could have done to avoid this scenario? Because it actually uh, led to a different trajectory for Nigeria. And actually, we are suffering from it today, 2022. Uh, not much, not much in his power. I don't think there was a lot he could do in his power individually. Uh, that to avoid the coup d'etat, you know, because his, what you could count as his error or what we could say, okay, um, he could have done so that Nigeria could have been different to avoid that um, military intervention was maybe he would have been more firm in emphasizing his decisions or his aspirations for Nigeria. He would have been he would have been he would have been stricter than he was. He would have been more demanding right, in terms of peace and resolution of conflict and uh, harmony in the country. He would have he would have shown low tolerance for disunity uh, and turmoil in Nigeria. What I mean by that is, you see the issue in the Southwest at that time, uh, it is largely acclaimed that he never handled it well. You know, and uh, already there were existing rivalries all over the Southeast the Southwest, but that one in the Southwest escalated. And so because he didn't manage it well, the military at that time felt Nigeria is falling apart. And for them, that time, they were feeling they were saving Nigeria. I want to give you a little sneak peek into the military mindset that time. They were feeling, no, we need to save Nigeria. So let us come in. That was their mindset. Let's save Nigeria from these weak, weak politicians that are not getting things going. In their, in their usual manner, they will tell you they are coming in to clear the audience tables and return normalcy and then go back to the barracks. So that was what they thought they were trying to do because they felt, no, these leaders are not managing this country well. Let us come in and clear the airwaves and then restore normalcy, make sure everything is, you know, there's a perfect structure that is running, and then we go back. So if you look at it in this light, if you look as though, yes, he was not, and indeed, I really feel from my studies, he was not very strong-willed in addressing the situations at hand internally in the country. So if he, he was firm and more strict and, made, and very resolute, 
in resolving these issues. I don't think it will lead to that military intervention. The military will still be in the barracks. Uh, they won't contemplate uh, 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 intervening in politics. You know, they won't, um, because if you look at, as at that time when that uh, assassination took place, military intervention was common in Africa. A lot of countries across West Africa were also experiencing military intervention. And what was the, the, the military's excuse? The terrorist civilians are corrupt. They are not keeping the country in good shape. They are not. So we are going there to restore normalcy and go back. So the military in Nigeria felt, if, if it's the same thing, as, maybe it's the same thing in Nigeria. So let's go in there and clear it and, uh, and so they struck. So um, for him, it felt as though he was, he was looking at the waves of military intervention across West Africa, another uh, parts of Africa, and then the internal uh, crisis happening in Nigeria. He didn't manage all of it well. He was not decisive and very resolute. If he was more, if he was more firm, you know, he could have avoided the military from intervening and uh, even leading to his assassination. Because actually, he is the commander in chief of the armed forces. The same armed forces yes. are rose up against him. Of course, not only him. This has been happening in many other places, like the United States. With uh, the assassination, almost countless number of prominent uh, people in politics. Uh, but only that they are usually different, no? Even like the one that happened in Ghana. Yeah, maybe they tried to, a similar thing was what was uh, what was planned in Nigeria. Only that it happened differently, no? In that it was yeah. not carried to a fruition, so it led to it become even more dangerous now than it, if it had happened. But in overall, you know, it is difficult after you take the life of another person and you start to talk. Hey, okay, let's forget it because yes, but let's forget it. But are you able to bring back the life that you have taken? Because life has too costly to be taken just like that. No? So <laughs> assassination, killing people in, in power, <laughs> is not something very simple to, to understand. It, there are consequences for that. You know, but let me cut you a little bit, sorry. You know, this thing you're saying now, it's very difficult for the military to understand because in their training, remember, they are trained to kill. They are trained to kill anything they perceive as the enemy. So once you are being perceived, I'm not saying they are correct. I'm just trying to give you uh, an insight to their mindset. They, they are trained to kill. They are, they, are trained, they are under oath to do anything to defend the territorial integrity and the sovereignty of where they belong. So for, for the case of Nigeria and Nigeria. So for them, now anything they feel is a threat to Nigeria. They feel it is their duty to defend it. Defending it means they could kill, they could spill blood, they could cause damage. No, if it's in the name of defending, defending the sovereignty of Nigeria, they will do it. Normal, and for them, they are just being professional. But for us as civilians, of course. So that I'm just trying to give you an insight into their mindset. That's why, just go ahead. Oh, well, and that can even be very interesting, you know, okay, that they try to defend the constitution, let's say so, because it's the constitution yes, that, like that, that set up the military too, because without the Nigeria constitution, there is no, the politicians are just ordinary people, the military, the police, everybody is equal, you no? Know, because yeah. everybody is the same. If, if that was the case, they killed the, the prime minister, and then, of course, the president become the, the, the head of state, and so they will, revolve, they will re rearrange the system again. Yeah. But we see that the military coming in now. Uh, okay, we are not going to talk about the military culture in Nigeria. It's an okay. argument that we're also going to talk about because it's very interesting. Yes. 
because yes. for a very long period, is it 30, 37 years or so, we'll be having yes. military running the system. We see they're coming now, coming to stay, not that they come to rectify the error, like the what have happened in the United States where they assassinate the president. Of course, election need to be done. And of course, a lot of, it, it's a complex system, but of course, we see that the military doesn't come and take over now. Because I don't think the military are actually trained to administer system, complex system that we have, no? Become head of state, election, uh, having election. Because the logic is completely different. I think I was asking you before, uh, what else is, did I ask you what are his leadership quality? Because that is important for us. What do you consider to be his leadership quality? Okay, so um, I would liken being a Nigerian, being a student of Nigerian politics, I'm going to liken the qualities of uh, Saoba Kretofa Balewa to somebody currently in our political um, reality right now, which you may find funny. I, I, I liken Saoba Kretofa Balewa to former president Goodluck Jonathan. Yeah, I, I see them in the same light. They are not the same people, you know, they are not. But when it comes to their political leadership style, traits, aspirations for Nigeria, and their willing execution. I find them very, very similar. Very similar. Okay. Yes, I will break it down. Now, uh, when it comes to the willpower in executing tough decisions, they were lacking, both of them. They were lacking, both of them. When it comes to addressing domestic issues in the country, they were lacking, both of them. For Saoba Katafa he didn't manage the crisis in the Southwest very well. He did not. He, he, he scored very low in his approach because he was, he was too cautious, too careful, which is a good thing, but when you say something too much, it's already bad. So it's good to be cautious, but he was too cautious, he was too careful, he was too... That did not allow him to be firm in resolving that conflict. The same way with good luck that he was not very firm in tackling the insecurity in Nigeria that time, even though he did his best. But it was one of the things that people used to vote against him, which is the same thing with People used it to say this guy was not firm. The military now said, no, 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 let's come in. And... Because immediately came all those crises in the South, everything died down. Everything died down. Like, because when the military came on board, you know now, it's fire for fire. If you are not stopping, we are going to. You know, so uh, I put them in the same light. They were liked people because they were loyalists. They played by the book. They, they, they didn't, they were not deliberate on stepping on toes to achieve what they wanted to do. No, they just like, okay, let's hold every part together, you know, and, and make sure there's peace. Even though everybody, they are having interest and all that, but let's just, we're all brothers. Let's believe that. On the very positive side, the, 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 the stood for the unity of Nigeria. It's something that good luck is something that probably I did. Like no matter what happens, Nigeria should still be one. And the unity, probably is, uh, I see him in that light a lot. And I see good luck in that too. In their speeches, you see them portray this uh, agreeing, like this warm, this warmness that Nigerians do have a lot. You see them embracing everybody. We're all together. 
know, we are all, you know, one and all that. In all their speeches, you hear this a lot of the times. Saoboka uh, Tafawa his independence speech, his open uh, remarks at the conference at um, uh, the, the 1957 conference. Like most of the time, you, you hear them trying to embrace this unity that Nigeria uh, should have. Then, lastly, positively, uh, for Saoboka Tafawa and uh, even for uh, for for good luck, Jonathan. They they placed the country ahead of their personal interest. They, they placed uh, the unity and existence of Nigeria ahead of personal interest. They they, they, they never went for personal interest uh, as such, even though they had their original interest. You know, good luck had his his. Uh, his political godfather, uh, the person of uh, Edin Clark that time. And then, Saoboka Tawari Balewa had Samuri Bello also, you know, telling him uh, how to go about things. He never went against those people. They never openly or privately, they, they were just, so these are very calm people that I feel they can embrace the whole country. I just feel like, I just wanted them to be more firm and more strict in you know, emphasizing their aspirations for Nigeria. Like, we want this to be done. If it should be done in a quiet and, and then also they, they stood for political reforms. So I work at the stood for Nigeria political reforms a lot throughout his first, uh, throughout his uh, administration as, as um, Prime Minister of Nigeria. He stood for political reforms. He, he likes reforms. He like if you feel there's something less, come together and create another way around it. You know, same to you, good luck, he organized the national confab and then it never came into be, but we still have the document. So that's how I see Sarabukatifabalea a lot compared to the current political figure that we have. Thank you so much for that. All right, now, um, what do you think we can learn from then? This is the, the real uh, meat actually of the conversation because we are looking at the life and legacy of our past hero, even if it is of uh, the living one, but we actually try to see what we can take from them to, um, to learn from because we are the ones that live it today. What, what do you think are the real things that we can take from him as quality that, make, that we can refer to as his legacy? Okay, so I'm going to uh, have this real quick. For Sir, um, uh, for Sir Abubakar Tafabaliwa, um, he was one politician that was true to his word. Unlike what we have right now, that people are saying some things and the action is something else. What he was saying was what he was going to do. He never sees it if he doesn't mean it. He was a sincere Democrat. He, he, he believed in uh, mass opinions, uh, majority decisions, like, he, there was no time in his, uh, during his, you know, his leadership as prime minister that he was seeing something else and doing something different. Uh, so to, he was, there was no, he was not suspected of being corrupt for lying or mis, misappropriation or, you know, seeing something else and doing something else. He was, they were very sincere politicians that we lack in the Nigerian political space currently. There were no campaign lies. He was not lying to you with campaign manifestos and 
coming out to come and do something else. Everything was just the way he was seeing them. He's not promising you what he will not do. That thing he promises he can do. Very austere and very sincere. So we, we, we need a lot of that in our political space currently because it's part of the thing that's affecting us. Nigerians and our leaders, they know the issue. Just like you mentioned earlier, I, I think they know all these issues. They know all the problems. But it's the solution and the application of that solution that's where the problem is. But when it comes to identifying and recognizing the problem, our, our leaders know, our politicians know. In fact, they're actually using the problems to exploit the people the more, which is something that um, we can learn the opposite from studying the life of Sir Albuquerque Tafaro I don't know if you want to add anything to conclude the conversation because I really find it very educating. The last statement uh, I would like to uh, pass is that um, Sa'aubakir Tefawa Balewa was, from everything we have discussed, we really missed the fact that he didn't complete his tenure as uh, the first prime minister we ever had. Because I strongly believe with, his, with the trajectory of his um, leadership ascension, he would have gained a lot from his person, from his style of leadership, from his way of achieving his uh, aspirations for Nigeria, you know, not just achieving them, but the manner also, I think would have gained a lot because we, we don't want to have, uh, we're not going to have leaders that we achieve aspirations in the same way. So somebody else may come and be dogged in approaching their results. Some other people may come and be calm and peaceful and harmonious and still achieve. So he represents this calm and peaceful part in achieving his aspirations for Nigeria. So we miss that part. And uh, we hope that our politicians will emulate uh, this part of him and let's see it in the future. Thank you so much, dear Philip. It has been a pleasure on my part. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, sir, Mr. <laughs> Obihi. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure you subscribe so you never miss any of our future episodes. Rate and review Obehead Podcast and share with your friends who might need it. I remain Obehead Ewafo. Thank you so much for listening and talk to you in the next episode.